Well, good morning, church. I'm happy to be here. I hope that you guys are happy to be here, too. Sunday is the highlight of my week, as it should be for for all of us. It's good to come and worship together and sing together, and it's so much better in person um, than through a screen. What great songs, Mark. I'm glad that you chose those ones. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, sanctified, salvation wrought. What what a joy. What a blessing. We're going to learn a little more about that today. Um, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans 3. Um, before we do that, though, I did have an announcement about next week. Next week, we are going to get together get together, together more than this week even. We're going to start up our Sunday school classes next week at 9.30 and our main service at 10.45. Miss Diana was nice enough to point out to me that I put the wrong time in your bulletin, so don't expect a 15-minute Sunday school class next week. We're going to go <laughs> the full hour until 10.45. We have our systematic theology in the coin. We're going to have Romans in here. So two adult classes to choose from. They should both be fantastic. I wish I could be in both, but we should be recording both. So that'll be good. And our little ones are going to be going through Answers in Genesis with their fantastic teachers. So Look forward to that next week, and then the following Wednesday on the 12th, we're going to take a break from our study in Acts. We're going to look at the journey of journeys of Luke, so very applicable to what we've been looking at in Acts, who, which is authored by Luke. So that'll be on Wednesday the 12th at 7 o'clock. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is our sole infallible authority, that it is God-breathed. It is theonustos. It is more sure than the ground that we stand on. You said that your word will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not pass away. The grass withers, a flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that it has been preserved for us by by giants. And we are here today standing on the shoulders of giants who have taken and preserved your word, who have searched through the scriptures and come out with truths such as sola fide, sola gloria, um, sola gratia. God, thank you for for your word and for the truth that has been derived from it. And we pray that you would speak to us through it this morning by your Holy Spirit. God, help us to be free from distraction. Help us to, to just glorify you in this time, that this would be a time of worship, not just a time for, for ourselves to, to learn, for ourselves to sit back and relax, but that you would be honored and glorified and worshiped through this time. God, we thank you for the fact that we're able to gather here today. We're thankful for the, the other churches throughout this valley, um, up and down the Wasatch Front, who are glorifying your name this morning. We want to join them. God, we want to lift up your name. We want it to be famous in this land. We pray that you would use us as we go from this place, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would be light shining in our perverse universe, that we would be salt and light to this world. God, we, we pray that you would be lifted up during this time. In your name, amen. All right, so again, if you haven't already taken out your Bibles and turned to Romans 3, go ahead and do that now. Um, and while you do that, I want to tell you a story about a man that I met up in Ogden. Before Brittany and I moved down to Santa Quinn, we spent six years living in Ogden. And one of the things that I miss most about Ogden is a place called 20th Street. It's uh, one of the most popular streets in the nation. It was voted one of the top 10 streets in the United States. And it's, it's a great place. It's just six to eight blocks of uh, businesses that are all gathered together, nice and tight and close old buildings. It's beautiful. There's a, a park and an amphitheater. And I would go out um, at least once a week and I'd set up a table out there and I'd try to talk to these people that are just walking by and engage them in spiritual conversation. One Friday afternoon, I was out there sitting at my table. A man walked by and I started to talk to him. And throughout the course of our conversation, I shared with him my favorite verse from the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 which says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become righteousness of God. And then I read it to him again. I slowed down and I read it more deliberately that 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as I began to, to expound upon that and to explain it to him, he, he stopped me. He said, no, wait, just, just hold on. And he took the Bible out of my hand. And he read it. He went over and he was contemplating it for a couple of minutes. And then he turned to me and he said, it's, it's a trade. It's an exchange, right? He takes our sin, and in return, he gives us his righteousness. We are the righteousness of God. And it was as if a, a light went off in his head, and he said, it's all about righteousness. And in that moment, he seemed to, to get it, that exchange, that great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin, and he imparts his righteousness to us. And in the same way, back in the 16th century, Martin Luther got it at one point. It, it clicked for him, and he understood that he has no righteousness, that he is a filthy wretch who's in need of a Savior. We talked last week about how he would spend five, six hours in a confessional talking to a priest, to a man, about his sins, confessing his sins, racking his mind, trying to remember all the things that he had done previous day, previous 24 hours to offend a holy and a righteous God. Luther understood that it was all about righteousness. And I want to read to you a, a verse, a verse that is on the front of your bulletin, actually, um, that was instrumental in the life of, of Martin Luther. And that verse is Romans 1.17. It says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And Luther, he got hung up on, on that verse, and he actually said, I hated that word, that word righteousness. He saw that word righteousness as speaking of God's active righteousness, that God is good, which he is, that God is holy, he is perfect, he is morally superior to everybody and he understood in his mind that God would use that righteousness to judge and to condemn us almost as if he was a, a Zeus just zapping people left and right because he is good he is righteous and we are not he thought that that righteousness would be the grounds on which God would condemn us and that he was condemning all of us and in one of his journals he's quoted as saying isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, and through the gospel threaten us with his righteousness and his wrath? Luther didn't understand initially the gospel to be good news. He thought that the gospel was bad news, and that by it, we would be condemned. He thought that added something else for him to do. He already understood, man, I can't keep these Ten Commandments. I can't measure up to, to what the law requires. And now God is, in the New Testament, he's adding to that with the gospel and, and requiring righteousness of us, and, and I can't do it. And then he looked over time after being hung up on, on this verse and being uh, really horrified by, by this verse, by Romans one seventeen. He looked at the greater context and, and he realized that this passage isn't talking about God's active righteousness. It's talking about God's passive righteousness, that God gives us a righteousness. This verse could be better translated as, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, that God imparts this righteousness to us. He understood that God is, in fact, the ultimately righteous supreme being. There is nobody more righteous in existence than God. But rather than using that righteousness as grounds for condemning us, he decides to impart that righteousness to us. Rather than holding that righteousness over our heads, he takes and he clothes us in his righteousness. And he does so by faith alone. Isaiah 51 talks about, well, in Isaiah 51, it's actually God who says that his righteousness is forever. It is eternal. It is endless. It is limitless. The righteousness of God is forever. And it's by that, 
that eternal righteousness that God can impart righteousness to us. He doesn't run out of any righteousness. He doesn't hit a, a cap or a limit. He is eternally righteous. And it's when Martin Luther figured this out and he understood this to be a, a passive righteousness that he identifies himself as being born again when he understood that he couldn't achieve any kind of righteousness on his own. He had no righteousness in him. He had no hope for salvation apart from God, apart from Christ, and that he needed that righteousness that comes through Christ. He needed Christ to take that righteousness or take that sin upon himself. And that that was something that was from faith to faith. It was completely by faith, utterly apart from any work that he could do, utterly apart from the law, but it was 100% from beginning to end by faith. Sola fide, faith alone. And looking back to, to Romans, um, that was Romans 1.17, that instrumental, impactful verse in the, the life of Martin Luther, bringing him to this understanding that faith is the only way to become righteous. And after that verse, Paul kind of deviates from that thought for a moment, that thought of, of righteousness being by faith alone. And for the next two and a half chapters, he really jumps into and expounds upon the fact that, that we are not righteous. And he uses that as a, a groundwork, as a framework for the fact that we need a Savior, which we should all be doing in our personal evangelism. We can't expect people to to reach out to a savior unless they realize a need for a savior, unless they realize that they are broken, that the wrath of God abides on them, that they are sinful, that they are enemies of God. That must come first. And, and Paul does a great job of demonstrating that for us in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Let me read for you Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the very following verse. And Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He identifies all of us as ungodly, unrighteous, twice in that verse. Again, it's all about righteousness. And we, as fallen human beings, we are unrighteous. We are ungodly. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 5. Again, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is righteous, even in his judgment, and he pours out wrath on us, deservingly, because we deserve that wrath, because we are lost in our sin. And then the, the kicker, the, the, the climax of uh, Paul pointing out the fact that we are fallen and sinful. In Romans three ten through 12, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Again, we are all on. We are all unrighteous. That is why we need a Savior. Three chapters Paul spends really outlining this, the fact that God is righteous, man is not. God is good and man is not. There is none righteous, none who seeks after God. There is none good. And just in case you thought, oh, maybe that one, nope, not even one, he says. None righteous whatsoever. And then after going through and, and thoroughly laying this groundwork, letting us realize that we're, we're filthy, that we're a bunch of wretches, we have no hope in ourselves. He gets back to that thought that he had back in chapter 1, verse 17, that thought that God will impart his righteousness to us from faith to faith, that on the basis of faith, God will give us his righteousness. And he really goes in and, and expounds upon that in verses 21 through 31. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, looking at those 11 verses at the end of, of Romans chapter 3. And it's there that, that we're really going to land today, and we're going to talk about this, this idea. The, the main idea of this passage is that God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. Again, God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. That's, that's the premise 
start with, right? It's not like the kicker at the end of the message. We're starting with that. God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. But what does this mean? What are the implications of the fact that God grants us his perfect righteousness? Not just on a whim, not something we have to work for, but by faith alone. We're going to look at four different implications of this this morning. And again, we're going to um, jump in as Paul really begins to pull apart this idea that righteousness is granted to us by God, by faith alone. If you guys have your, your bulletin on the left side, inside of your bulletin, I left us for, for some definitions. Because again, it is vital in any kind of teaching setting, any kind of personal evangelism that we define our terms because these are terms that get thrown around and, and redefined and reused and um, really captured and, 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 and perverted quite often. And so we need to define these terms that we're talking about. And the first term that I wanted to find, the first word I wanted to find for you is the word faith, which is kind of fitting when we're talking about faith alone, right? Um, faith is defined generally as a complete trust or an absolute confidence. Trust or an absolute confidence. Luther himself said that faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. And the Bible gives us a a definition for this word. This word faith is unique in the Bible in that it provides a a definition for us, whereas some other words aren't aren't defined in the Bible. And the author of Hebrews actually gives us a definition in Hebrews 11 verse 1, which says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. And this definition that is provided for us by the author of Hebrews comes with two different aspects to it. Um, it has a, an intellectual assent that is, is involved in this, in believing something to be true, in understanding and acknowledging something factually as being true. And then uh, a second aspect is to, to trust and to realize the reliance that we have upon something. So not just to intellectually acknowledge, yes, that is a, a true thing, Scripture says in James, even the demons believe and shudder. They believe there is one God, and they shudder. That's not enough. We need to rely on that. We need to trust on that. We need to put our faith and our dependence upon God. That is what it means to have faith. So two aspects, intellectual assent and trust or reliance upon. So let's go ahead and and read Romans 3, verses 21 through 31 um, with that that basic understanding of what faith is. And I want you guys to, to really look and see how often Paul uses this word faith in this passage. He uses it multiple times in just a few verses. Romans three twenty one through 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So in those few verses, eight times Paul uses that word faith. Faith is vital to this passage. It's important to to justification, to who we are as, as believers and how we become believers in Christ. So the, the first aspect, the first implication 
of the fact that God grants us his righteousness by faith alone that I want to point out is that since God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith, it must be apart from the law. Since God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone, it must be apart from the law. Looking at verse 21, Paul starts off by saying, but now. And again, he had just spent two and a half chapters talking about how man is unrighteous, about how man can't do it, man is not good enough, man is fallen, man is sinful. Um, nobody's righteous, not even one. And then the verses that Rex read for us this morning, verses 19 and 20, he says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The law shuts us up. The law puts us in our place and says, no, you're not going to be, be righteous by the law, but rather the law makes us conscious of our sin. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then he says in verse 21, but now, apart from the law, not through the law, not because of the law, not in addition to the law, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the whole point of the law is to show us we're not good enough, that we can't cut it, we can't hack it. The law has high expectations, right? Jesus says that unless you are perfect, you will in no way inherit the kingdom of God, that you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, and nobody is perfect. That is a point of the law to show us that, that we fall, that we fail. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we look again at the, the purpose of the law. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. It says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law is not for the self-righteous, not for those who think that they're good enough. The law is made for self-condemnation. So we can hold up the law and we can see, oh man, I, I failed at that one. Ooh, don't do that. Oh, I do that all the time. Man, I'm not good enough. Remember, Jesus said, it's not the, the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick who need a doctor. The law is for us to realize we're not good enough. We fall incredibly short. That is the, the purpose of the law. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. It's been revealed. It's, it's been made known to us. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's not, uh, this isn't something that's in isolation. This isn't, uh, unique or, or a novel idea. This is something that's been around for a while. It's grounded in historical Judaism that God has always saved his people by faith and by faith alone. You look back at the, the very first mention of, of faith and somebody being saved by faith, um, and it's ironically not in, in Genesis. It's in Hebrews 11 talking about Abel, who was back in Genesis. Um, and it says that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel was declared righteous by his faith. It was his faith that caused the author here to say, even though he's dead, he still speaks through faith, because he had faith in the God who made him, in the God who created him. Genesis 15.6, popular verse, says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This belief, this trust, this relying aspect of what it means to have faith is what draws somebody to, to salvation. Faith is completely apart from the law, completely apart from works. And we see that so clearly in verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is all-inclusive, right? Nobody's left out. Jew and Greek, Gentile, slave-free, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
it is not within our nature not to sin. We have fallen in Adam. Just as Adam sinned, we have all sinned. Just as death entered the world through one man, so just as sin entered the world through one man, death entered the world through sin. And you and I, we all take part in that sin. We have all fallen short. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is completely outside of our nature to do anything that is good, anything that is not sinful. That is who we are by nature. It's not just what we do, but it is who we are. We are sinners by very nature of who we are. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 say, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. No one is justified by the law before God. We might think that somebody is justified by the law before man. We might look at somebody and say, oh man, that, that person, he is, he is good. He is blameless. Paul said that of himself. According to the law, he was blameless. Nobody could point a finger at Paul and say, well, he's, he's broken the first commandment. He's broken the third or the fifth or the sixth. But in his heart, he knew that he broke the commandment. In Romans 7, he says that if it weren't for the law, he wouldn't realize that covetousness was a sin. But he realized that in his heart, he had that, that covetous heart. And nobody is justified by keeping the law before God. It doesn't matter if we're justified before men. Before God, we all fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that word justified is another word that we want to define. That is a word with huge theological implications. Justified. And it means to, it's a, a legal declaration that pardons from guilt and the penalty of sin. Justification is a, a legal declaration that pardons from guilt and the penalty of sin. Now this word is really central to the five solas, really central to the Reformation as a whole because the Catholics had a, a misunderstanding of this word. Martin Luther himself had a misunderstanding of this word. If you look at the, the etymology, where this word comes from, the, the grammar of this word, if you break it down, it's confusing in Latin. Uh, it comes from the Latin justificare or justificare if you want to get technical. Um, and it's a combination of two different words, justice, which we should be able to to determine pretty easily means just or or right, justice or or justice, and facari means to make or to do, and so if you break down the the Latin of this word, it means to to make right or to do right, but if you look at the Greek, it means to declare as right or to declare just um, and the Catholics would, would agree with us that God is the one who justifies the sinner they wouldn't have any reservations in saying yes God justifies the sinner but it's a means by which God justifies the sinner where we differ uh, the, the Catholics would say we are justified by, by faith plus these other things that we have to do plus penance plus uh, indulgences which mark touched on a little bit last week, plus these different works of grace that we have to do. Whereas Martin Luther came in and he said, well, justification is different. To be justified isn't to make right, but it's to be declared right. And there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right. And even God doesn't make us right in that sense, but rather he declares us to be right. Paul loves to use legal language, legal jargon. And all throughout this, this section in chapter 3, it's just riddled with, with legal language. And this word justified is, is no different. He speaks in a, a very legal way. You can almost put yourself in a, a courtroom type scene when you're reading through Paul's letters. And you can imagine a, a judge declaring somebody to be just, laying down the gavel and saying, you are justified. That is what it, it means to declare somebody as, as just. Does a, a guilty man ever get declared innocent by a judge? 
Sure, it happens every day, right? And does an innocent man ever get declared guilty? Well, well, yeah, because the judge doesn't make somebody guilty. The judge isn't the one who makes somebody innocent, but rather it's a declaration of their guilt or a declaration of their innocence. And in the same way, God is the one who declares somebody to be righteous. Not that he makes us righteous, but he declares us to be. This word justified is kind of the, the counterpart of condemned. So when somebody goes into a courtroom and the judge condemns them, he isn't making them guilty. They are, they're either guilty or they're not. He doesn't make them guilty, but he is declaring them to be guilty. He is saying that he recognizes them as being guilty. And the same goes for us who stand before God and we are justified before God. We aren't made righteous before God, but we are declared to be righteous. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous. God doesn't make us righteous, but we are declared to be righteous. And it's, um, it's out of this idea that we really get this, this concept of practical versus positional sanctification or practical versus positional righteousness. Before God, positionally, God takes and, and declares us to be righteous. He says, I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I look and I see the, the sinless blood of Christ when I look at you. I don't see your sins. On paper, we are righteous. However, practically, we still continue to sin. We still continue to struggle with, with these sins. Um, and it will be a, a lifelong process of sanctification where we are made more and more like Christ. Uh, again, Martin Luther, you're going to hear his name quite a bit throughout the series, I'm sure. He had a, a famous saying, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. And what that means, that's Latin. I know you guys don't speak Latin. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, it means simultaneously just and sinner. Simultaneously just and sinner, which is a, a mind-boggling idea that at the same time we can be just. We can be declared righteous legally and we can sin. Now that might seem like a, a contradictory term, a, a contradictory phrase, but while we are at the same time just and sinner, we are not in the same way justified and sinful. Before God, we are justified. Again, he looks at us and he sees us as clean, as righteous because of that great verse, my favorite verse again, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus imparts to us. It's that trade. It's all about righteousness. Jesus gives us his righteousness. But yet, we sin because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a, a body that is tainted by, by sin, that is in Adam, and that is going to continue until we are glorified with Christ, simultaneously just and sinner. The second implication that I want to look at of the fact that God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. Since God is the one who justifies us, he must be appeased. He must be satisfied in order to do so. Since God justifies us, he's the one who does it. He must be satisfied in order to do so. Let's look back in our text. Romans 3, verse 24. Now that we've talked a little bit about what it means to be justified. And Paul says here, right on the heels of uh, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified or declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified or declared righteous as a gift by his grace. Now we're going to talk a whole lot more about grace next week, but just a simple definition of grace is unmerited favor. We have unmerited favor with God. Not something that we earn, not something that we deserve, but God, for his own purposes, his own reasons, has shown favor to us um, to, to be the recipient of grace is to get something that we don't deserve. It's another definition of grace, to get something you don't deserve, which is contrasted with mercy, which means not to get what we do deserve. As fallen, sinful human beings, we deserve hell. We have sinned against an eternally righteous God. Right? Remember uh, Isaiah 51.8, that his righteousness is forever and ever. It is eternal. We have sinned against that God, 
And we deserve hell because of that. We deserve condemnation because of that. And God, in his mercy, withheld that. He didn't give us what we do deserve. But we need to have a, a positive righteousness with God. It's not enough if we have our, our debts paid. If we owed millions of dollars and somebody paid off our fines and took our account back to zero, that's awesome, right? That's good. But that's not enough to, to buy you a house or a car or a, a peanut butter sandwich. If you don't have any money in your account, we need a, a positive amount of righteousness. And that's where we get the righteousness of Christ that he needs to, um, for us to be able to be glorified someday, for us to be able to be on right standing with God, we need the righteousness of God in a positive sense. That's where grace comes in. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We've got a lot of big theological words here. Redemption means to be bought back particularly out of the slave market, out of the slave market of sin. Remember, we were made in the image of God. In his likeness, he created us, male and female, and yet we fell in Adam. We sinned in Adam, and we are utterly hopeless in our own righteousness because by, by keeping the law, no man will be justified. So we need to be bought back. We need to be redeemed. We need to be adopted back by God. And that's what this word redemption means, to be bought back. So it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are made right. I want to read to you another verse from Galatians. Galatians is a great book talking about the law and how the law is inadequate. Talking about how faith alone is the only way that we will ever be justified or declared righteous. Galatians 2.16 says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It is God who justifies us, and it is he who must be satisfied, he who must be appeased. Read with me in verse 25 of Romans 3. It says, This Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, if you look at that word and you get scared and you kind of zone out, don't come, come back with me because that's a great word, propitiation. Um, it's a, a satisfactory payment. It's a, a payment that's good enough, a payment that is adequate, a payment that's sufficient. Jesus offers a satisfactory payment. Jesus offers a, a propitiation for our sins. If you go in and you try to pay off a, a $50 phone bill with a $10 bill, that's not going to propitiate that bill. That's not going to be satisfactory. If you try to propitiate your vehicle's gas tank with water, it ain't going to work, right? It's not satisfactory, propitiatory uh, type of, of fluid, right? But Jesus, in his offering of his blood, that is propitiatory. That is satisfactory before God. Because again, the wages of sin, what we earn, deserve for our sin, is death. And God, being just, he demands that death. He can't just go back on his word. He can't change his mind. He can't sweep our sin under the rug. It must be paid for. He is both just and the justifier, verse 26 says. And he offers that propitiatory sacrifice in his blood. And remember, we have sinned against a, a perfectly holy, righteous God, an eternally righteous God. And that sin must be paid for by an eternal being. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is divine. Jesus is perfect. He is without sin. And he offered that propitiation on our behalf, that substitutionary sacrifice, so that we wouldn't have to pay that price that God the Father demands of us but he took that upon himself. In many faiths around the world, it's the job of the individual to offer satisfactory payment, to try to propitiate his sins to God. But again, that's impossible because by nature, we are sinful. By nature, we are unable to do anything that is good. Again, Hebrews eleven six: without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have no righteousness in ourselves. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
there's nothing that we can do to appease God. And that is why we must have the, the propitiation offered by God himself. God became a man. And he offered that propitiation. God died for God to, to satisfy that, that payment that he requires because of our sin. That is the beauty of the Christian religion. That is the beauty of salvation by faith alone. The only appeasement that we could ever hope to offer for our sin is by spending eternity in hell. Again, because we have sinned against an eternal God. That is the punishment that we deserve. Remember that it is God who, who must be appeased. He is the one who we have sinned against. How foolish would it be for us to, to sin against the government, for us to commit a crime, and then to go before a judge and to suggest our own punishment for that crime? That's not how it works. The one that we sin against, he's the one who sets the punishment for the crime that's committed. And God, being perfect and holy, has declared that the punishment for sinning against him should be eternal conscious punishment in hell. And we are in no position to talk back to God. The, the clay doesn't talk back to the potter and say, but, but that's not fair. We are not in the position of judge. God is a judge and he has declared that because he is so holy, because he is so righteous, the sin against him demands an eternal punishment. And so we either take that on ourselves or we put our faith in Christ alone who took that punishment himself. Again, God grants us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. The third implication of that is that since God is the one justifying, you and I have no claim, we have no right to boast in. You and I have no claim to boast in. Look with me down at verse 27. Paul writes, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Now clearly, if we were justified by the law, if we were justified by works, then then we would have something to boast in, right? We could say, well, I, I did such and such. I worked so many hours. I did so many good deeds. I am justified by this standard that you have set before us. But why is it that we are unable to boast if we are justified by faith? You might think, well, I'm the one who had that faith. I'm the one who had that trust, that belief, that reliance in God. I did that, so, so why wouldn't you be able to boast in that? Maybe you're more intellectual than Joe Schmo down the street who doesn't have that understanding, who doesn't have that realization, or maybe he doesn't have that humility. Maybe you think, well, I have more humility than Bob Ross up this street, right? Because um, he doesn't realize the fact that he is fallen, that he is sinful. He doesn't go to the scripture his, as his sole infallible authoritative word, as his sole infallible authoritative guide, to realize that he has fallen, that he is sinful, that God is holy and righteous and we are not, and that we need him. So why is it that we are unable to boast in the fact that we have faith? Well, it's because that faith isn't even ours. That faith is something that is given to us, that is shown to us, that God grants to us. He is the one who opens up our eyes and gives us an understanding of who he is. He is the one who redeems us, who regenerates us, gives us that new life. We are born again because he is the one who has caused us to be born again. When we were born the first time, we had no, no work in that, right? No active part in that. That is a completely passive thing. Thank you, Mama, right? Because um, that's not anything that we have any work in. We're just born passively. When we were born again, it's the same situation. We were born passively. Uh, we were brought to life, to new life, by God giving us faith. And we should understand that even our faith is a gift from God, not something that we should boast in, not something that we have earned or we have worked up within ourselves, but it is something that has been given to us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody should boast. We are saved not on our own doing, but by faith. And it is a faith that we can't boast in because it has been given to us by God himself. Now look at me, look with me at verse 28 
This is a great memory verse. If you guys don't know this verse, jot it down and, and try to commit it to memory this week because it will serve you well in your conversations with friends and family. It says, For we maintain that a man is justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law. Again, it's apart from the works of the law, not by the works of the law, not in addition to works of the law, not complementing works of the law, but we are saved and justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Now Paul has gone over just in these few verses the fact that God is the one who grants us salvation. God is the one who gives us his righteousness. He's made a great case for justification by faith alone, apart from works, on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, not our own sacrifice, so that we can't boast in this, this fact that, that we have faith. And then, glance down at verse 31, Paul being uh, an extremely bright man, being very lawyer-like in his thinking, anticipates a rebuttal from men who hate God and stand opposed to him. He says, do we then nullify the law through faith? This is a common objection. Do we nullify the law through faith? You say, all you have to do to, to believe, to be saved is have faith. You just have to believe. Does that mean you can go on sinning? Does that mean you can do whatever you want to do? The law doesn't even matter. And Paul says, nope, absolutely not. May it never be. Meganoita, the strongest no that you can have in the Greek, God forbid. Absolutely not. It's not even a, a thought. Like, stop playing with me. Get out of here. In fact, he says, on the contrary, we establish the law that, that faith doesn't nullify the law, but that uh, a faith that is given to us by God is going to produce. Fourth implication I want to point out to us this morning is that since God justifies us by faith alone, that faith will be effective. That faith will be a living faith. That faith will be a saving faith, and it will produce fruit. Now, if if you want to engage in conversation with somebody about this topic of justification being by faith alone, if you want to do it around here, it's very likely that the first verse you will hear in retort will be James 2.17, which says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And to that we should say, Amen. That's true. Faith, being alone, if it has no works, is dead. But we have to correctly and biblically and properly understand and define that verse. That doesn't mean that we add works to our faith. Because again, through the works of the law, no man will be justified. justified. Um, but rather, what that verse is saying is that true faith, faith that is given to us by God, uh, a faith that, that God, who is the one who is justifying us, grants us, um, it's not going to be a broken faith. It's not going to be an unproductive faith, but that faith will produce. Jesus said that every good tree will bear good fruit. He will produce works through us. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has good works that he prepared beforehand for us for the purpose of doing them. Yes, he saved us by grace alone through faith alone, but for the purpose of good works. Our faith, if it is true living faith, will produce good works. Not as the root, but as the fruit of our salvation, as a root, as a fruit of God regenerating us and making us into a new creation, into a new man. The old is dead and the new has come. God will be glorified through his children. He will uh, take and he will chasten every children, every child who is his legitimately that is that work of, of sanctification, of progressive um, growing and becoming more and more. And now as, as brilliant as Martin Luther was, he was still a man. Just like us, his sanctification was progressive. It was step by step. It took time. And at the beginning of his ministry, he is very famously quoted as looking to James and calling it an epistle of straw and looking down on the epistle of James because he didn't understand this fact that, that our faith will produce works. But towards the end of his life, 
he said this. He said, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. You can't separate heat and light from fire. You can't separate faith and works. Again, not for salvation, but our faith, if it is genuine, will produce works. God will work through us. He will be glorified through us. Sanctification always follows justification. God takes us, he makes us into a new creature, and that will be an effective work on his part. We will indeed be new. Uh, God will make his people righteous, not just positionally before God, but practically over time. It's been said that God loves us enough to save us where we are, but too much to let us stay there. He's going to take us, he's going to develop us, and, and make us into who he wants us to be. And so we've seen that God does indeed grant us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. That means that if it's by faith alone, it can't be by works. That means that God is the one who justifies us and he must be satisfied. He must be appeased. He must be propitiated, which he was by the perfect blood of our Savior. Since God's the one who justifies us, we have no right to boast. We have no right to, to boast in anything save for the cross of Christ himself because he's the one who's given us that faith. He is the one who has sustained us and we can't say we've done anything because if we are his, we are his because he has chosen us. We are his because he has his, not because of anything we ourselves have done. I want to close by reading this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And Paul again here says, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the faith that you have given us. We thank you that, that you have seen fit to, to take on flesh, to lay down your life for us, to offer that propitiation, that satisfactory payment, that payment that we are unable to offer ourselves so that we might be redeemed, we might be reunited with, with you, we might be unified with you. God, we thank you for who you are for the fact that that salvation is completely apart from us because we would mess it up if it had anything to do with us. God, I thank you for men like Martin Luther, like John Calvin, John Knox, like Zwingli, these men who have helped us to better understand justification by faith alone. And God, I pray for any who, who might not have that faith who might be putting their trust in their own works and their flesh and their ability to keep the law, that you would open up their eyes, that you would draw them to yourself, and God, use us to do so. God, make us willing to open up our mouths and to speak your truth. God, give us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness. From here, being more and more in love with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.